Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Naughty Archaeologist. I am your host, Lauren, and today we're going to go through the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus and a little bit of their history and story. Uh, Now, a little bit about this podcast. Uh, This is episode one, so uh, you may hear some weird sounds. We're just getting off the ground, and so I have cats running around. I'm recording in a closet. Uh, You know, it's just, it's new podcasting. I decided to get a hobby during the pandemic. And this is what came out of it. Um, I, I have a little bit of a background in anthropology and archaeology, um, but I've just been really interested in shipwrecks and submerged cities, and they've always fascinated me. Everybody talks about, like, Atlantis, and, uh, you know, I grew up hearing about the Atocha and the treasure galleons of the Spanish main, and then, um, you know, I was a kid when Pirates of the Caribbean came out, and, you know... Everything was just so fascinating and adventurous, and um, I've always loved being around the ocean and on the coast and stuff, and so this was just a natural progression of my interests. And so we're going to just talk about shipwrecks and submerged cities over the next couple of weeks, and I really look forward to your responses and to hearing what you guys think. Um, You know, you, you can talk about this stuff all you want with your friends, but eventually they get tired and bored of it. So uh, I'm just going to talk at my computer and my internet friends and people who find this interesting, and uh, we'll go from there. Um, Again, my name's Lauren, and uh, welcome. Um, So the history of the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus. Um, The Terror first was one of the the ships that was that was older um she was part of the 1814 chesapeake campaign from the war of 1812 um she participated in the raid on alexandria the battle of bladensburg uh the burning of washington on august 24th 1814 she was actually part of the bombardment of stonington connecticut and also the uh, Battle of Baltimore and the bombardment of Fort McHenry, which actually was what inspired Francis Scott Key to write the Star-Spangled Banner. Um, He wrote the poem first, which eventually got turned into the music and eventually became the United States National Anthem. I mean, you you guys know that. I doubt that this podcast has gone international at any point in time. Um, But... uh, it was under Captain Sheridan that the terror was actually involved in the battle at Fort Peter and then the attack on St. Mary's, Georgia. Um, but then, you know, after the War of 1812, she just kind of didn't do much until uh, 1828. And then she got refitted for service in the Mediterranean. Um, but she was damaged near Lisbon, Portugal, where uh, then she underwent repairs. And during these repairs, uh, there, there's not a whole lot of information on it that I could find, but we do know that she was outfitted for polar exploration and refitted with everything in 1839. So maybe they just did enough repairs to keep her afloat and then she sat in berth for a little while. But um, nine, uh, 1839, um, she was assigned to go to the Antarctic along with the Erebus. Um, Francis Crozier was captain on that expedition and he was second to second in command to James Ross, and which is where you get the name of the Ross Sea down in the Antarctic waters. 
Now, before we talk about the Ross expedition, I want to tell you guys a little bit about the back expedition, which is really important to talk about. Now, this is just a really short anecdote, but it is interesting nonetheless, um, because in 1836, uh, the terror went to George Back, who was captain for an Arctic exploration. Uh, They meant to go to Repulse Bay in North America and do a little bit of exploration for the Northwest Passage that everybody wanted to find in the 19th century. And uh, so they, they actually ended up in Hudson Bay and then got stuck there for 10 months. They got stuck in ice. And at one point, the ice forced her 12 meters up the face of a cliff. Like, this was ice ice. And it was not good. Um, she tried to go back to England. They ran out of supplies. And so, but she got hit by an iceberg in spring of 1837, as you do. And uh, she nearly sank. But George Back was able to beach her on an Irish coast and the ship was able to be salvaged. And she made it back to England to be retrofitted for the Ross expedition and then subsequently for the Franklin. Uh, Her refit was actually really important to talk about. Um, She, in 1839, during the refit, she actually got a lot of really cool stuff put on her. The terror specifically, I mean, the Erebus underwent a lot of these modifications as well. So hang with me. We're talking about the terror first, and then I'll talk about a little bit of the Erebus and how they were eventually found together. But during 1839 with the terror, uh, they both underwent heavy modifications and they got a makeover, honey. We've got steam engines from the Greenwich line. Um, They got locomotive steam engines and they had a whole 25 horsepower which could propel the ship to a whole whopping four knots. (laughs) Now, this was a big deal because they were doing four knots in ice. Um, Because she had screw propellers, she was coal-powered, and she got iron plating. Um, Now, she got iron plating on her fore and aft. This meant that she could go through pack ice like nothing. Maybe not nothing, but it was much better than original wooden ships where the ice would just cut through it and make holes in it and sink it immediately. You know, Titanic style. Now, she was also cross-planked, which means that it distributed the impact force. And so when she did hit pack ice, it didn't rip a whole new hole in her hull. It just distributed and she was able to cut through it. Um, She also got some really interesting supplies. She was outfitted with so much canned food, Um, 8,000 tins of preserves, uh, two tons of tobacco, 7,560 liters of liquor, and the Terror's Library had 1,200 books. Um, So not only were they just completely outfitted for a long journey, they had canned food. Now, canned food uh, had been around for a little while. Um, I think it was like 1809. But it wasn't really perfected and commercialized even until 1912. So 1839 is a very early stage to have these things. Um, tobacco was pretty normal. and But the thing about the diet is that the diet for sailors hadn't really changed for a good hundred years. A lot of it was based on Dried meats, salted meats, uh, hard tack, um, 
like a really good biscuit that lasts a couple of months. And so they weren't really fitted for cooking, right? Because a lot of the wooden ships and fire don't really mix. Um, A lot of ships had ovens and a lot of ships would still have kitchens and galleys. A lot of archaeological evidence points to burned uh, bricks. And so we'll talk about that on the next episode with the label. Um, But kitchens on ships didn't usually do a whole lot past general heating up of things. It wasn't like you were baking fresh bread or cooking gourmet meals like cruise ships do. It was a lot of just, you know, we're going to warm up the stew. We're going to soak this dried meat so it's not you know, harder than rocks. And then we'll, you know, serve everybody with this nasty biscuit, maybe a couple of pickles and some boiled eggs. Um, So a lot of it was very, very basic diets. And this hadn't changed for hundreds of years. And so finally, with the terror and the Arabis, you had this growth in, in range of a diet. So that's really cool, actually. Um, You get like jams and jellies and things. And canned stew and you know it's it's pretty good uh compared to previous diets i'm not saying a canned diet is great but um it's it's better than the last options um so another thing that the ships got that was new was central heat so the central coal burning stove duct ran the length of the terror's births and she had kind of a primitive method of centralized heating which can you imagine going into the arctic and not having heat you're just wrapped and cuddled in blankets and you have to cuddle with your shipmates for warmth, which I'm not saying is a bad thing or even unattractive. Um, but I can't imagine the bathing situation was super great. So take that where you want. But the, I mean, the central heat allowed for them to stay warm in their own small cabins and they didn't have to start fires in the middle of the ship or, you know, be uncomfortable and have to wrap themselves in 30 blankets to stay warm. All right. So now we're going to shift course just a little bit, right? We're going to talk about the Erebus. Now the HMS Erebus was a Hecla class bomb vessel. The Terror is a Vesuvius class. Uh, So what does that mean? So Hecla class means it's a class of bomb vessels of the British Royal Navy in the early 19th century. Um, They're usually like bomb and mortar ships, and they're super heavy. These guys are not to be messed with. Um, They all had these really interesting names, um, and most of the time they played a role in Arctic or Antarctic exploration because they can deal with ice a little better because of their heaviness. Um, And they've all got great names. It's like the Fury and the Infernal, the Meteor, the Sulphur, the Beelzebub. The and of course the Erebus. Now the they actually had a, a Vesuvius too, but Vesuvius is also its own class of bomb vessel. But there's actually no information on the internet on it, so I can't tell you what it means. Um, there is some Vesuvius class bomb ships that were talked about in the Norwegian army. Uh, excuse me, the Norwegian navy. But. When you Google Vesuvius class meaning or what any kind of Vesuvius class, the only ship that comes up is the Terror. So it makes me wonder if there's even a real Vesuvius class or if that's something that Wikipedia just made up. Um, 
which, by the way, I use a lot of different sources for this. It's not just Wikipedia. Um, I actually went to the conference in Boston for the Society of Historical Archaeology, and I heard the Royal Canadian Parks talk about their expedition to the Terror and the Erebus in Terror Bay. Um, so don't worry. Wikipedia is not the only source for this. Um, it just has some, you know, nice little sentences that are numbered and have actual sources attached to them uh, on top of my own notes, which plus on top of Parks Canada and on top of personal accounts of the diving. And listen, we'll go over it all at the end. I don't need to bore you with the facts of where I found my info, but you should know I do my research. I promise. Um, so yeah, Vesuvius has no clear definition on what it means, but a Hecla class bombship uh, is a something that is usually outfitted for bombs and mortars, pack ice, and are usually survey and exploration ships. Now, the Erebus was actually fit for service um, in the Mediterranean and actually served a couple of years there before she was refitted as an exploration vessel for Antarctic service. Um, and on November 21st, 1840, she was captained by James Clark Ross, um, and they went down to Antarctica in company with the Terror, um, and that's where they did an Antarctic expedition. They did three different forays into the into the seas, and, you know, uh, Captain Ross liked to name things after himself, but they mostly mapped and uh, just kind of explored and... They they did oceanographic data. They had botanical and bird specimens. He wrote a book on it, um, The Botany of the Antarctic Voyage of H.M. Discovery Ships Erebus and Terror in the years 1839 to 1843 under the command of Captain Sir James Clark Ross. You try naming a book. It's hard. Um, and then they, they also had collected some birds and were described and illustrated by George Robert Gray and Richard Baldler Sharp in The Zoology of the Voyage of HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, Birds of New Zealand, 1875. Uh, they, they're not creative, I'll give you that, but they're very factual, I'm sure. The Ross expedition lasted from 1839 to 1843. And of course, it was led by uh, Captain Clark Ross, um, but the the terror was also commanded by uh, Francis Crozier, who was a good friend of Ross. Um, now, Sir James Clark Ross, in his Wikipedia profile uh, portrait, is just has no right to be as beautiful as he is. It's a very uh, idealized portrait, um, and he has just some lovely facial features. And uh, I hope his. I hope he had fun on his Antarctic trip. Uh, he, I think he deserves it. Now, he discovered in the Antarctic expedition uh, the Ross Sea, the Ross Ice Shelf, the Trans-Antarctic Mountains, and the volcanoes Erebus and Terror, which he named after his ships. Um, the young botanist, Joseph Dalton Hooker, made his name on this expedition. He did good stuff, guys. Um, but this is about the Ross expedition, right? So the Ross expedition did a lot for just kind of mapping that area. Not a lot of people had been down there and they discovered new species, new plants, new birds. Um, they discovered the Ross seal, a species confined to the pack ice specifically of Antarctica. And, you know, like everything down there, the Ross stuff 
uh, was named after Ross. Now, he was the main leader of the expedition. They, they had a lot of scientific purpose for this trip. So they collected a lot of geological and zoological specimens and uh, botanical things. And these gentlemen had been associated with British Scientific Society of the time. And so you have not only Joseph Dalton Hooker, who was only 23 during this voyage, um, you ha- have him being uh, assistant surgeon to Robert McCormick and responsible for collecting the uh, a lot of the specimens that were there. And then Dr. McCormick himself had actually been the ship surgeon for the second voyage of the HMS Beagle under Captain Robert Fitzroy who, of course, was on board with Darwin during this expedition. And so a lot of Darwinian connections, a lot of British Scientific Society. They're all friends. They all know each other. Um, now, we've got the voyage. Uh, the They landed in um, Tasmania, then known as Van Diemen's Land. Um, <laughs> Tasmanian devil. I get it now. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, in August of 1840. And then they went to Antarctica. They landed on Victoria land and then, you know, named everything after British people because British. And after that point, they said that they found the Great Icy Barrier, which is now known as the Ross Ice Shelf, which they were unable to get through. And they had to go back because the the weather was getting bad. The season was getting late. And so they ended up back in Tasmania. And then they did another return back in the summer of 41 to 42. So you got to remember, right, Southern Hemisphere summer is our winter in the Northern Hemisphere. So December is summer in uh, that area of the world. Uh, I always forget about that. And it's always really weird to me that it snows in Argentina during uh, July. It's just, I don't know, an odd thing to think about, you know. But uh, that's when they conducted a lot of their studies in magnetism and they grabbed a lot of their samples. And then they arrived back in England uh, in September of 1843, having confirmed the existence of the continent itself. And they actually mapped a large part of the coastline. And they were the last major voyage of exploration made wholly under sail. And that's when, uh, after, after that, the Terror and the Erebus would be retrofitted with steam engines. And that's when uh, the exploration trip to the Arctic would then commence. Um, And in 1845 to 1848, Franklin took them on their last voyage. Right before the Franklin was when she went through those heavy modifications that we talked about with the steel refitting, uh, the Greenwich railway system, locomotive engines, and the just massive amounts of supplies for this upcoming trip. The Franklin expedition was meant to be the pinnacle of Arctic exploration. They had enough provisions for the trip to last three years. She set sail in uh, 1845 for the Northwest Passage and were last seen by the whaler Enterprise on 28 July 1845, secured to an iceberg. The last definite information we have is that the Terror and Erebus were abandoned on 22 April 1848 from a message left by Captains Crozier and Fitzjames. So Franklin's two naval vessels sailed up the Wellington Channel before turning south toward Beachy Island, where they would spend the winter. Uh, In the spring, they sailed south down Peel Sound, 
but off the northernmost point of King William Island were trapped in the ice flow down the McClintic Channel. In the spring of 1847, a party from the expedition traveled across the ice to Point Victory on shore and deposited a written record of their progress. It is thought that they reached Cape Herschel on the south coast of the island, filling in the unexplored part of the Northwest Passage. Um, that's when Sir John Franklin died in that June. Um, they were still trapped in the ice, um, but the Erebus and the Terror drifted south until Captain Crozier ordered their abandonment in April 1848. Weakened by starvation and scurvy, the 105 surviving men headed south for the Great Fish River. Most died on the march along the west coast of King William Island. The ice was never meant to last as long as it did. Poor Franklin and its crew conducted their expedition in a period of permanent ice pack due to an extended freeze that provided one of the least favorable climatic periods within the last 700 years. This has been confirmed by ice core analysis in 1985. Can you imagine that? 700 years! And you pick literally the worst day to go to the Arctic. You know what? This year sounds good. Maybe we should go this year. When in reality, all they had to do was pick literally any other year and they wouldn't have died. But that's just the luck that the Franklin expedition had. It wasn't even until 1859 that the sole piece of paper often known as the Victory Point Note was found and revealed anything about what happened. Uh, in the margins, this standard admiralty form was a handwritten message, uh, which said the ships were deserted on 22 April 1848, having been stuck in ice since 12 September 1846. 105 officers and crew, under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier, had departed on foot for the Back River, or Back's Fish, Fish River, as it was then called. Um, the note stated that John Franklin had died on 11 June 1847. The remains of the men um, is interesting to come across because that's that's been some of the hardest evidence that archaeologists and historians have had to come to terms with because the ships were abandoned and then they just kind of wandered around in an Arctic landscape with no real true directions. And so archaeologists and historians have had to really kind of just piece together what's been found by local uh, Native American and First Nations, um, mostly Inuit um, that live in Nunavut, Canada. And nobody really listened to their voices because everyone was still very racist. But uh, there, there were some remains found. So it was over 100 years after the last search expedition returned home that investigation into the fate of the Franklin expedition garnered any kind of real public attention. When forensic anthropologist Dr. Owen Beatty began the 1845-48 Franklin Expedition Forensic Anthropology Project, F-E-F-A-P, FEFAP, um, how'd you like that project name? Sorry, Dr. Beatty, I didn't mean it. Relics and human remains, overlooked by earlier searches, were conducted in 1981 by Beatty's team from sites on King William Island. Uh, the human remains were analyzed using modern forensic techniques in an attempt to ascertain what might have caused the death of the crew and to identify which crew members' remains had been found. Guys, just in case I haven't clarified, all of this is happening in Canada. All of the research, all of the crashes, the Arctic, I mean, everybody knows it's all Canada, but like King William Island, um, Baffin Bay, uh... All, all, it's all Canada locations. None of these ever make it past the border into the United States. Um, 
So yeah, it's it, it's all past the Arctic Circle and no man's land except for a handful of small, very very small native local towns. Um, through Beatty's research, it was found that the amount of lead in the bones of some of the men that had been found was exponentially high. These dudes had severe lead poisoning, um, which was actually uh, the biggest lead uh, hypothesis for why they all died, which was one of the biggest factors contributing to the end of the expedition. I mean, weather considering, too, like, of course, they were all going to be stuck forever, but lead poisoning was considered their um, prime cause of death, essentially. More widely known is Beatty's later work on Beachy Island, where he and a specialized team exhumed and autopsied three remarkably well-preserved crewmen who had died and were buried during the expedition's first winter in the Arctic. Examination of tissues collected from the men's bodies reaffirmed Beatty's earlier theory that lead poisoning was one of the factors, so they confirmed it there. Um, and Beatty further supposed that the expedition's tinned food, here's where it gets interesting, it was the tinned food. Um, hailed as cutting-edge technology and stocked in abundance forever and ever, uh, it had been contaminated by the lead solder used to seal the tins and was the most likely culprit. Um, so we got to talk about the search efforts, right? The, the expedition, the remains of the men, and a lot of it was a big mystery until around the 80s. And only then had they really even found a couple of cairns and some interesting little grave sites that had been set up for them, most likely left behind by the men who buried them. Um, but it, it was very few remains. There weren't very many bodies to, t to uh, examine. It was... Um, it was really difficult to find them, and it took a handful of over a hundred years to even get to this point. So let's talk about the search rescue attempts. Um, so we, it was lost for so long. So there's there's a lot of rescue attempts that attempted to find them. Um, the search for Franklin's expedition has been thorough and fraught with difficulty and disappointment. Um, remember the ship investigator. We'll talk about her more later on. Um, not the investigator as a person, but the investigator as the name of a ship. Okay, so 1848, James Clark Ross, right? Remember him? He went to the Antarctic and did the whole Ross expedition, named everything after himself and his friends. Um, but he was the uh, captain of the investigator and the Enterprise. Um, but he only got to Somerset Island because the ice was so thick in 1848. So this was the, one of the first attempts to find Franklin's lost expedition. Ray Richardson, Arctic Expedition. Uh, he also searched along the Mackenzie River in the coastline, found nothing. Um, the HMS Plover and HMS Herald came via the Bering Strait and William Pullen. In 1850, Richard Collinson and Robert McClure, commanding the ship's Enterprise and Investigator, respectively, um, both lost the Investigator to the ice. That's, that's gone. Um, commanded by McClure, and it was rescued by the Resolute. It fell to the same fate as that of the Erebus and the Terror. They set in ice, later abandoned. This time her and most of her crew made it back to England. Um, not her, but the, the ship is still sitting in the bay, right? But most of its crew made it back to England. They were stuck for three years, you guys. Three years. No, thank you. Horatio Austin and Erasmus Olmani 
were the captains of the uh, Resolute and the HMS Assistance, respectively. The same Resolute that rescued the Investigator, there was two steam tenders, the Pioneer and the Intrepid. And Omani finds Franklin's camp at Beachy Island. And that's how we know that there was bodies and why um, Dr. Beatty was able to examine those, knowing that they were most likely part of the Franklin expedition. Thanks, Captain Omani. And then you had Charles Forthfife on the Prince Albert. You had William Penny with the Lady Franklin and the Sophia. You had John Ross on the schooner Felix. Edwin de Heaven, the first American search party. And the, the Grinnad expedition with the USS Rescue and the USS Advance. All right. So here's kind of a timeline of the years that lined up. In 1851, you had one search. In 1852, you had four searches. Four ships were lost, including the Resolute, which, after freezing in place, eventually broke free and was found and returned to England. She was broken up and turned into a desk, which is now sitting pretty in the Oval Office, a gift from Queen Victoria. In 1854, John Ray learns where Franklin lost his ship. In 1855, one search. 1857, Francis McClintock finds relics at King William Island, including the sole surviving written records of the Franklin Expedition, and a ship's boat on runners carrying two corpses. 1869, one search. And then a couple years pass in 1875 and 1878. You had one search in each year. In 1981 to 1982, was it's, some time has passed. Excavations started at King William Island, and that's when Owen Beatty began the Franklin Expedition Forensic Anthropology Project. Uh, the goal was to use modern techniques to identify any human remains and, and determine cause of death. Now, what they found was the remains of six to 14 men in the, in the vicinity of McClintock's boat place, quote unquote. Um, the artifacts was one boot sole, which had makeshift cleats, and they hypothesized the cause of death as lead poisoning. These guys were surrounded by it. The tins, the ship, the everything that they were using, the silverware, it was all lead. Now, what they concluded was that the possibilities were the lead solder used to seal the expedition's food tins, other food containers lined with lead foil, food coloring, tobacco products, pewter tableware, and lead-wicked candles. Also scurvy. Um, that, was a, that was a big hypothesis, too. Um, so here is the BD autopsies. After obtaining legal permission, Beatty's team visited Beachy Island in August 1984 to perform the autopsies on the three crewmen buried there. They started with the first guy to die, um, leading stoker Mr. John Torrington. And after completing his autopsy and exhuming the and briefly examining the body of John Hartnell, the team, pressed for time and threatened by the weather, returned to Edmonton with tissues and bone samples. Um, Trace element analysis of Torrington's bones and hair indicated that the crewmen would have suffered severe mental and physical problems caused by lead poisoning. Although the autopsy indicated that pneumonia had been the ultimate cause of the crewmen's death, lead poisoning was cited as a contributing factor. During the expedition, the team visited a place about one kilometer north of the gravesite to examine fragments of hundreds of food tins discarded by Franklin's men. Litterers. Beatty noted that the seams were poorly soldered with lead, which had come likely in direct contact with the food. 
The release of findings from the 1984 expedition and a photo of Torrington, a 138-year-old corpse, well-preserved by permafrost in the tundra, led to wide media coverage and renewed interest in the Franklin expedition, which is great. Uh, Media attention is like one of the best things that archaeologists have in order to perform outreach, get grant money, research. Um, It provides people with an opportunity to help fund things that are going on, right? Because a lot of archaeology money comes from private donors. Well, that sounds weird, but research, man, academia is awful. Subsequent research has suggested that another potential source for the lead may have been the ship's distilled water systems rather than the tinned food. Uh, In my opinion, it's probably both, but I didn't perform any of the research, so I can't conclusively say. K.T.H. Farrer argued that, quote, It is impossible to see how one could ingest from the canned food the amount of lead 3.3 milligrams per day over eight months required to raise the blood lead level to the level of 80 micrograms or lead per deciliter of whole blood at which symptoms of lead poisoning begin to appear in adults. And the suggestion that bone lead in adults could be swamped by lead ingested from food over a period of few months or even three years seems scarcely tenable. End quote. In addition, tinned food was in widespread use within the Royal Navy at the time, and its use did not lead to any significant increase in lead poisoning in other places. So the Navy wasn't having problems. Nobody really knows why the Franklin Expedition did. And that's why it's hypothesized that it was probably in the water, or the water distilling process at least. Um, Now, however, and uniquely for this expedition only, The ships were fitted with converted railway locomotive engines for auxiliary propulsion, which required an estimated one ton of fresh water per hour when steaming. It is highly probable that it was for this reason that the ships were fitted with a unique desalination system, which, given the materials in use at that time, would have produced large quantities of water with a very high lead content. Uh, William Battersby has argued that this is much more likely for the source of the high levels of lead observed in the remains of expedition members than the tinned food. All right, so at this point, a lot of the Parks Canada people got involved. And it because the Franklin Expedition has now been kind of in the media and at the forefront of people's minds, now people are starting to really get involved. So in 1992, you had one search with Barry Ranford and Mike Yaroskavich, and they uncovered remains at the quote-unquote boat place and conclude that the surviving expedition members had resorted to cannibalism. Um, And in 92 to 93, I don't know how to pronounce this, so it's probably going to be butchered, and I'm really sorry. Um, But 92 to 93 had Project Utjulik, maybe Utjulik, organized by David C. Woodman and Brad Nelson. Um, who had finally started to listen to the Inuit oral tradition, and searches commenced. Um, The magnetic targets were identified via magnetometry, um, but no further investigation due to complications, and there was no significant research to report. Um, In 94 to 95, there were two searches, but no significant results, again. And then from 1997 to 2013... Big span of years. Uh, The EcoNova wanted to investigate the 1992 magnetic targets, and searches in this vein were conducted in 1997, 2001, 2002, and 2004. 
all magnetic targets identified in 1992 were confirmed as geological in origin by 2004, though a few Franklin artifacts were found during the shore searches. So they knew they were on the right track. Um, But then in August 2008, a new search was announced, this time to be led by Robert Grenier, a senior archaeologist with Parks Canada. And maybe it's pronounced Grenier, but since it's Canada, I figure French is probably the right pronunciation. So I'm going to say Grenier and roll with it. Um, This search hoped to take advantage of the improved conditions using side scan sonar from a boat in open water. Grenier also hoped to draw from newly published Inuit testimony collected by oral historian Dorothy Harley Eber in um, some of Eber's informants have placed the location of one of Franklin's ships in the vicinity of the Royal Geographic Society Island, an area not searched by previous expeditions. The search was also to include local Inuit historian Louis Kamukak, who has found other significant remains of the expedition and would represent the indigenous culture. So remember the investigator that was icebound in 1853? Uh, Well, the expedition actually found it. Um, This expedition in July 2010 found uh, the investigator in Mercy Bay and along the north coast of Banks Island in Canada's western Arctic. The Parks Canada team reported that it was in good condition, uh, upright at about 11 meters of water. So she's pretty shallow. Um, And then the Erebus was found. Right. So Victoria Strait Expedition 2014 which is still under excavation and updates will continue. Um, Stay tuned to the social media sites and I'll try and get those updates to you. Um, The Erebus is larger than the Terror. The Inuit salvaged some of the ship before it sank, but after it was beset and abandoned, there, you know, she she was gone. Um, A lot of the research on the Erebus has put, has been put on hold. Thanks COVID-19 strikes again. Um, Okay, so also the Erebus is in Nunavut, so the site is logistically challenging. Her hull is intact uh, to the upper deck, bowed astern, with a debris field and scour pockets. Um, She's also 11 meters deep. The artificial reef required vegetation removal. So when I went to the conference in Boston, the Parks Canada team showed a little video of them, and they're literally out there with scissors cutting kelp off of the stern of the ship. Hilarious. Freezing. I can't believe that they actually did personal dives to this thing and they didn't. Ooh. Um, it's ice covered nine months out of the year. So it's only free August through October. Um, she does have exceptional preservation conditions, especially inside the hull and in sealed uh, primary contexts. So she does have some structural damage, um, which is to be expected in a shipwreck, right? We expect there to be some collapse. Uh, a lot of the uh, upper decks we think are probably going to just come down around our ears any moment. And I mean, it's it's in water. It's been soaked and soggy for the last hundred and so years, you know. So it's pretty expected. Um, she's a relatively shallow wreck. And so she's open to sea conditions. Um but it makes it a little easier to excavate, right? So the divers have more access to the interior spaces and it gives the wreck a little bit more sense of urgency. So they've used side scan sonar and multi-beam echo sounder surveys for 3D modeling and site sketches of the debris field 
photo video documentation, uh, remotely operated vehicle and photo video exploration in the lower and Orlop decks. Uh, the Orlop deck is the lowest deck on a wooden sailing ship with three or more decks for your information. I did not know that until I learned about this ship. There's actually a lot I learned about the structure of ships when putting together this podcast. Um, so we're learning together. It's okay. Um, so it's usually where the cables are stowed and usually below the waterline. Um, so they did some test excavations in 2019, which was 93 dives in 16 days. Goodness gracious. So cold. They mostly stuck to accessible spaces, right? So the fitted beds and cabins, the third lieutenant's cabin, um, captain steward's pantry. Um, there was evidence of dockyard adaptations, shipboard life, technological innovations, context increases in combination with the HMS terror, um, which um, they mostly stuck to the port side excavation of the Erebus. Now, they found some ceramics. Uh, which was pearlware and whiteware. And the pearlware and whiteware had some little graffiti on the back. They're low value, willow pattern. Um, there was actually 47 ceramics in the steward's pantry. Many batches of the same makers were used by officers. Um, there was some Royal Marines equipment like winter boots, a wool gaiter, seal fur lining. Um, there was an accordion that was found. There was a writing kit that had pencils, a feather, and an ink bottle. There was a porcupine hairbrush. Um, mitochondrial DNA was extracted and positively tested, and they've matched it to uh, the steward, Edmund Hoare, and uh, they also found his wax seal. Now, the treatment and the excavation methods were um, used with water dredges, trowels, and hand fanning, which underwater, it's, it's literally like using your hand to wave at the sand to move some of the sediment away. Um, the documentation took place with location, depth, size, color, name of the object, if known at the time. And then they did in situ and studio photography with scale sketches. Uh, with the conservation, it was great. Um, the cold Arctic water was covered by ice much of the year and the sediment covers it and acts like a preservation goo. Um, the lack of looters and treasure hunters, because it's such a difficult location for interference, was amazing. So there was very little stolen from the wreck besides what the Inuit had actually salvaged before she sank. Um, the storage of created specialized conditions, right? Because it's been preserved under this weird sediment preservation goo. Now they have to preserve it outside of this goo that it's been under for the last hundred years or so years. And so to conserve it and to look at it back at the lab was a challenge. Um, Fred Hornby of the Terror also had an artifact found on the Erebus. Um, and there was a bunk and drawers that were mostly empty except for epaulets. But they found a lieutenant's rank of most likely third lieutenant James Walter Fairholm. Um, mostly, be and they base that because of the cabin configuration, and they found a letter to his father. They they had some Inuit recovered silverware as well. Now, let's talk about context for a little bit, um, just for a second. Archaeologists know that context is the most important part of a dig, uh, most impart important part of an excavation, right? Because you can have something that 
the meaning of the item changes based on where you found it. And where you found it is what's most important. Um, Do you have a doll, right? So let's use a doll for an example. Is the doll sitting in a chair or is the doll in the bed with the little, little girl, right? So doll in a chair makes it creepy. Doll in bed with the little girl makes it cute, right? So everything just depends on how you found it. And context was super important, as it always is. Um, and this, because they found this artifact from um, Fred Hornby, they, they know that the crew were often jumping between the ships. Um, and so they learned about evidence of life aboard a 19th century Arctic steamer. Right. So we're able to talk about their hardship and their success based on this information. Um, they sang songs and they had morale boosting activities on board. They we have evidence of their interpersonal relationships, not only between the sailors on the ships, but among, you know, where they thought that they would be when they got back to England, uh, the letters that they had written to their families um, and stuff about how they passed the time. and. Most of that was letter writing and music, and it's a very humanizing element to this, right? These are people that were on board. They got bored. They got excited. They were happy to see each other. They were sick of each other. Of course, you are going to find emotions interspersed on these very human spaces. Um, and of course, human remains, anytime they're ever found, archaeologists are very careful to give respect to these people. Um, you know, they had hearts and they had dreams and expectations of them. And they were really excited to be explorers and adventurers in this age of discovery. Um, so it's, it's important to take into account the people as part of this. Um, and then with the terror, the terror was found two years after the Erebus. Uh, she was found in 2016 at a depth of 69 to 79 feet of water. She was found in Terror Bay after Inuit oral history was finally acknowledged. You'd think with the bay named Terror Bay that they'd find the terror in Terror Bay. But what do I know? It, there was a story from the Inuit oral history, right? So it's a story about masts sticking out of the water that changed the original search area from Cambridge Bay to Terror Bay. So they were looking for the terror, not in Terror Bay which was named Terror Bay after the terror, they were looking for the terror in Cambridge Bay. Look, I, I don't write history, but if I did, I'd write it differently. It took them two and a half hours to find her. <laughs> Big shocker. Now, Louis Kamukuk, a resident of nearby Goya Haven and a historian on the Franklin Expedition, Parks Canada had ignored the stories of locals that suggested the wreck of the terror was in her namesake bay. Surprise. Despite modern stories of sightings by hunters and from airplanes. Uh, <laughs> Louis Kamukak was instrumental in the exploration of both of these ships. And Goya Haven was a de facto um, like site office for these excavations. Um, it was really cool to see because um, they really got the the locals involved and it was really a cool collaboration. And Goya Haven is still the uh, stewards of these sites. Um, 
Now, the Terror was in much better shape than the Erebus, with very little damage due to environmental conditions. Um, It's 24 meters to the seabed, with mild currents and a silty, flat seabed, but very poor diving visibility. They found a 23-foot cutter um, next to the Terror, um, but the circumstances surrounding why the Terror sank are still unclear to archaeologists. Uh, Again, the research is currently happening, so once we get those updates, I'll let you guys know. Um, They used the research vessel David Thompson, conducted 46 dives in seven diving days, and seven micro-ROV interior inspection dives. Um, In 2019, the visibility was great, uh, except like further towards the seabed. The seabed was really silty, and so it makes it really difficult to see things. but the Deep Trekker ROV was used with um, a lot of the cabin partitions upright and intact. And so a lot of the artifacts were in situ. She has a retractable propeller, which is in situ in its working position. Now, this could have been their winter quarter configuration. These are some of the working theories. Um, there was no indication of organized abandonment and no indication of a violent sinking because she wasn't at anchor. Now, she was partially rigged for stream propulsion, um, and there was excellent material preservation, again, because of the sediment and the environmental conditions. Um, Now, the archival information is readily available on her construction, but information on the journey is scant and hard to find. It's possible that it's still in the captain's quarters, still aboard the ship. Um, There is a Parks Canada guided tour of the HMS Terror available on YouTube. And it's fascinating to look at. You get to go along with the ROV and the diver, and it's beautiful. Now, uh, you can imagine the bustle of activity that once filled these corridors and cabinets and mess rooms with clamor, said Dr. Harris, a diver. You carefully maneuver the RV into the cabins, you f- said Dr. Harris, a marine archaeologist with Parks Canada. He continues, see, it's exhilarating, but it's quite a solemn space, end quote. Now, the ship remains so intact that the camera was only able to visit 90% of it. Uh, Some skylights even retain their glass. The only door they found closed was, tantalizingly enough, the one opening onto the cabin of Captain Francis Crozier. Now, even more tantalizing are all those cabinets and drawers, probably full of journals and maps, Harris said. Those papers, preserved by cold water and a protective layer of sediment, are likely to be legible. Each drawer potentially has materials that could shed light on the fate of the expedition, he said. Now, again, let's talk about Goya Haven. Um, The residents are the current guardians of the ships, and Parks Canada works closely with the native population that lives there. They have a shipwreck festival every year, and the Rex's excavations have brought jobs and economic stimulus to the little town, though they do fine on their own and have a thriving community. This is how archaeology and indigenous communities should work together. They listen to each other, they observe how customs are practiced, they help each other, and they respect those customs. All right. Now, watch out for pictures that I'll post about the Erebus and the Terror, information from the current excavations and the research that is happening. It's, again, it's all ongoing. Everything is still happening and currently being explored, though it is difficult because of the COVID-19 issues that have plagued us for the last year and a half. Um, And, you know, we're currently in year 12 of quarantine. All right. 
before I go, I do want to talk to you a little bit about diving on the Erebus and the terror. It's uh, freaking cold. Now, I found an article from Smithsonian Magazine that talks about a little bit of their diving experience. Um, so they had really good, clear conditions from August to September, and they set up a special platform directly over the wreck. Um, so that instead of scuba, they could use another technique called surface supply diving that allowed divers to get an unlimited air supply through kind of like an umbilical cord system. Um, they had special hoses that fed warm water to the divers' suits, and as sea temperatures could drop to 28 degrees, this combination greatly increased the efficiency of the dives, and some divers were even able to stay underwater for up to three hours without coming up. In the past, divers could typically stay down at the icy wreck for only like 40 minutes at a time. So this greatly increased the uh, efficiency of the excavations. Um, now, the 2019 field season yielded tons of artifacts and uh, had really great excavation. But 2020 was when it really kind of just stopped. And so there's there's just a lot of really cool research that is going to happen on this excavation in the future. Parks Canada not only uh, coordinated among themselves with a massive budget, like they had a research vessel, they had a helicopter. Can you imagine the money that went into the Arctic survival gear for the field site, right? So you've got like tents, sleeping bags, heater sources. Um, the, I mean, the money that went into this was incredible the government got involved they got the uh the coast guard involved and so the coast guard are conducting dives alongside the parks canada guys and they're conducting safety dives and making sure that everyone is staying alive and you know providing uh oversight and uh help and assistance when they need it um and so it, it's a really cool collaboration between government scientific communities and indigenous communities and to watch all of those come together and form this beautiful coalition that is ready and excited to undertake this archaeological project. The Terror and the Erebus are fascinating. There's even a TV show about them now, um, which won tons of awards. And uh, if you compare pictures from the set to pictures found from the archaeologists, the accuracy and the detail to the production team was astounding. They use the same willow pattern, ceramic ware. They have it in the same places that the archaeologists found it on the ship. It's just beautiful. Um, they, they paid really special attention to these details, and it was just an excellent, excellent show. Um, the acting is great. The production is great. Um, they did go a little fantasy and of course there is a little bit of drama that they have added, but, um, I look forward to next week's episode of the LaBelle. Stay tuned and we will have episode two coming up shortly and also stay tuned for our mini series on, uh, sunken cities as well. And the sunken Cities series is hopefully going to, um, be up soon. I have not picked a city yet, but we're coming. Um, I'm hoping to release episodes every two weeks. Um, these episodes are really research intensive. And so it takes a little bit to put together the episode and the, the writing and some of the notes that I have. 
However, we're going to get them up. We're going to keep going. I look forward to seeing you guys. Check out our social media sites. Uh, that's at Naughty Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And check for uh, pictures and updates for the next episode. I'm really excited that this podcast is finally off the ground. Go get wet, nerds. Congratulations, everyone. You've made it to the credits. I'm so proud of you. Thank you for listening to my podcast. This was, of course, directed, edited, recorded, and put together by me, Lauren. I am the sole producer and executive director, you know, all those like big fancy names. Uh, So not only that, but I also have a lot of sources to thank. So we have the Royal Museums of Greenwich in the UK. And they had a lot of really great articles. Um, they have, of course, Wikipedia, the CanadianMysteries.ca by um, R.M. Kerner, D.A. Fisher, J.C. Bourgeois, and B.T. Alt. Um, Marc Andre Bernier, who presented research at the Boston SHA Conference 2020, along with Parks Canada and Charles Daniel, Jonathan Moore, and Matthew Betts. The Canadian Coast Guard, the Canadian Ice Service, the Canadian Navy, the Government of Nunavut and Parks Canada, the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and Arctic Research Foundation, Paul Watson and the Toronto Star, Justin Tang and the Canadian Press, the Smithsonian Magazine, Joya Haven and the Inuit Guardians and Stewards, and the Franklin Interim Advisory Committee and the Inuit Heritage Trust. And special thanks... um, Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please look out for episode two, The LaBelle. I'd also like to extend an incredibly very extra special thanks to the artist Trevin Golden and for the use of his music as he allowed me to use the song Low on Air. Go check out his SoundCloud. He's Goldie, G-O-L-D-I-I, if you like these beats.